Are you willing to suffer for Jesus? And now for Follow Jesus, Part 3. I hope everybody's having a blessed evening. This is a sermon that, to be quite frank, I didn't really feel fully ready to preach. And I'm saying this to an extent to lower your expectations, but for a good reason, though. You see, by lowering your expectations, you may actually get more out of this word. You know, those sudden surprises tend to be the most impactful ones. If you've ever had something and you had a super high expectation of it and it's not met, you're disappointed. If you had a super high expectation of it and it is met, well, it's just as you expected. But those things that are just kind of like subtle, you don't have too high expectations or you even have a low expectation and it turns out to be great. Those are the memorable for years, story to tell kind of situations. So, you know, you may get more out of this word by expecting less out of it. God got me regardless, though. Let's just open up with a word of prayer. Lord God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this night that even though we're in a season of sicknesses of all kind, that you're still keeping us afloat, Lord God. We may not have fully cleared sinuses and our throats may burn a bit, Lord God, but you're at least waking us up every day. I thank you, Lord God, that the important things be in check. I thank you, Lord God, that no matter the situation that we're in, we still have a hope and a life to come that will far exceed this one. Lord, I just pray that your spirit shall fill this place tonight. And I pray that as we leave out from here, that you will still remain in us and us in you. Lord, just thank you. Thank you. Thank you. May you be glorified and may Christ be reflected through us. May his light shine that even if we're not preaching a sermon, people are still touched. Because it be those less expressive and flamboyant gifts that hold the greatest impact on the recipient. I can't think of many life-changing sermons I've heard, but I can think of life-changing kindness, gentleness, carefulness, and compassion that I've received. I can think of individuals whom I would accredit with saving my life and all they seemingly did was laugh and listen. Lord, I pray that no matter what we're doing, no matter how subtle, no matter how seemingly insignificant it may seem to us, Lord God, that your light shall shine through. Lord God, that for those around us, they will receive the love of Christ, that it will be amplified, Lord God, that we will be like a fire in the darkness, like a flaming sword that's not used to cut down, but to light the pathway to Christ Jesus. Lord, we love you. We love you for you have loved us first. And in the name of Jesus and in the spirit of truth, we pray Let the whole church say amen. All right, everybody. So today I'm continuing the series that I've been preaching for the last few months. It's an exegetical explanation of Mark 1, which is simply explaining scripture as scripture was meant. And today we're going to be going through verses 16 through 28, a little bit more than two. <laughs> the previous sermons were repent and be baptized as well as repent and believe. 
repentance in regards to a changing of one's heart away from sinfulness to righteousness. And by changing one's heart, so too shall they believe. By changing one's heart, so too shall they act differently. Today, the title of the sermon is simple. It's simply follow Jesus. Part three. Now, let's start it off with scripture. Mark one verses 16 through 20 in the NLT translation. If you'd like to read along, read one day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come and follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little further up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat repairing their nets. He called them at once, and they also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. Now, firstly, I want to talk about Jesus calling the disciples. Now, the reason why I want to do this is because in that culture, rabbis didn't actually seek disciples. Disciples sought them. Now, additionally, it wasn't just anybody who thought, you know, I think the Lord has a calling for my life in the ministry. And they had no previous education or learning. And they just went and saw the rabbi and the rabbi said, yes, no. These were learned individuals, learned individuals who even with their credentials were still then vetted by the rabbis before potentially being accepted. But we had Jesus here, a rabbi who not only were accepting men that were unlearned, but he sought them a completely uncanny approach to things. And you see, disciples weren't just mere people who occasionally listened to your teachings. No, it was a full time position. That's why they had to drop their nets and follow them then had to drop their jobs and follow Jesus. It was literally a full time position to be in a disciple mentor relationship. And see, with no previous studies, he chose fishermen. And as Weiser B stated, surely the good qualities of successful fishermen would make for success in the difficult ministry of winning lost souls. Courage, the ability to work together, patience, energy, stamina, faith and tenacity. Professional fishermen simply could not afford to be quitters or complainers. So though Jesus's selection was seemingly unnatural, uncanny, it made sense in the character scheme of things. His selections were even unnatural or uncanny beyond the 12, as Jesus actually had women in the disciples. Now, it wasn't the 12 that were women. It was between the 12 and the 70. There were different levels to this. Of course, you had the 12 disciples. You had the three, which were Andrew, Peter and John, the most significant ones, you could say. Beyond the 12 were the 70 who followed him fairly closely, but they didn't continue to follow him. And between the 12 and the 70 were women. And beyond the 70, as Jesus was nomadic in his preachings, there were various large crowds which would follow them. If you want to consider that a discipleship relationship is questionable, but at the very least, they followed them. And there was one thing especially that we see Jesus requiring for those who are to follow him. And it's simply to be willing to suffer for Jesus. Now, he didn't require you to be learned. He didn't require you to study for 10 years or to work for a decade in order to finally follow him. It was to simply be willing to suffer for Jesus. Of course, what Jesus was doing was very different in the time. I've explained this in the past sermons. And all that he really wanted was great loyalty and commitment. It couldn't just be acknowledgement that, you know, you are the Messiah or you are the rabbi. I'll follow you. But it was great loyalty to not switch up when things got difficult. And it was great commitment to be willing to drop everything and follow Jesus when he called. He became their number one priority. 
And going down the verse, we see something that's very commonly preached about, though probably in the wrong way. And that is the portion of being fishers of men. Now, there is a theme in the Bible and a common theme in the Bible, the New Testament especially, is the theme of opposites. What do I mean by this? I mean that when one thing is stated, it may actually mean two opposing things at the same time. Now, whenever you hear about the fishers of men passage, you'll often hear a sermon that goes something like this. So Jesus was telling people to be fishers of men. What do fishermen do? They cast out their nets and whatever comes into the nets, they'll pull back in. So as Christians, we are to cast out the gospel constantly and pull back in whatever is to be found. We are to engage in evangelism, trying to catch lost souls and bring them into the kingdom. This is what Jesus meant by becoming fishers of men. Maybe. And I mean, the Bible definitely does promote evangelism. It's just this passage wasn't likely referencing that. As a matter of fact, fishers of men in this context is about wrath and judgment, believe it or not. It goes back to an Old Testament prophecy. Now, we're going to go back to Jeremiah for this. Chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. Bear with me. It may sound a little bit grim. But the time is coming, says the Lord, when people who are taking an oath will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives, who rescued the people of Israel from the land of Egypt. Instead, they will say, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the people of Israel back to their own land from the land of the north and from all the countries to which he exiled them. For I will bring them back to this land that I gave their ancestors. But now I am sending for many fishermen who will catch them, says the Lord. I am sending for hunters who will hunt them down in the mountains, hills and caves. I am watching them closely and I see every sin. They cannot hope to hide from me. I will double their punishment for all their sins because they have defiled my lands with lifeless images of their detestable gods and have filled my territory with their evil deeds. So we see a kind of opposite thing there. At a glance, of course, it will be promoting evangelism. And I mean, you don't have to use that verse to promote evangelism. But considering the context of the Old Testament and the fact that Jesus was likely just, you know, quoting a sentence of a prophecy, which they commonly did. In those days, people memorized entire books of the Old Testament. So if somebody quoted a starting sentence of a proverb or a psalms, everybody else in the audience was known what else they were referencing after that as well. You quote the first sentence, everybody else knows the rest of the passage. So most likely he was referencing judgment and condemnation in that sense. But at the same time, it could have a double meaning. Regardless of the meaning, still do everything for God. Simply follow Jesus, because regardless of the meaning, the passage still tells us that he is the one who makes fishes out of men. And the main question of this sermon is one that's fairly simple, but it surely ain't easy. And it's simply, are you willing to suffer for Jesus? The title of this sermon is Follow Him. And we see on the basis of Jesus's selection for disciples that the main criteria in order to follow him is to be willing to suffer for him. Now, you may not have heard this before. <laughs> Many times, whenever we're being initiated into Christianity, we're just saying a prayer, following along and believing in our hearts. There's no mention of repentance. There's no mention of the struggle or the suffering. But in its base, from the first disciples to follow Jesus, they had to be willing to suffer for him. But the first question, the main question of the sermon is, are you willing to suffer for Jesus? And still, we must be reminded that we serve a God of love. The thing about serving a God of love is that a good God cannot possibly love evil as well. So in the process of loving good, he hates evil. 
And we have to wrestle with scriptures of God's wrath, of fire, still in the sense of wrath and judgment, of natural consequences to sinful behaviors. And not only do we have to wrestle with this, but we're called to wrestle and walk truthfully with all scripture, not just the kind ones or the ones that benefit us or the ones that promise prosperity, but all of scripture. Amen. Moving on, let's continue down to Mark 1, 21 through 28. It's about Jesus preaching with authority as well as addressing a demon. It reads simply, Jesus and his companions went to the town of Capernaum. When the Sabbath day came, he went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike the teachers of religious law. Suddenly, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus reprimanded them. Be quiet. Come out of this man, he ordered. At that, the evil spirit screamed, threw the man into a convulsion, and then came out of him. Amazement gripped the audience, and they began to discuss what had happened. What sort of new teaching is this? They asked excitedly. It has such authority. Even evil spirits obey his orders. The news about Jesus spread quickly throughout the entire region of Galilee. So starting off with verse 21 and 22, I actually want to look at the Enduring Word commentary, which provides us with some interesting history about how these synagogues actually work. Because it may have seemed a bit odd, you know, how Jesus just entered a synagogue and began to preach. Was it similar to when he entered the marketplace and forcefully flipped tables? Not really. The synagogues flowed very differently. By this, I mean that they had designated readings of the day. And then you had learned visitors who could come up and provide interpretations, explain scripture. So Jesus, as a rabbi, would be considered qualified. And you may wonder, well, what makes it different for him to be speaking with authority comparative to religious teachers? Well, the religious teachers of that day preached in pretty much one kind of way, recitation and memorization. What they would do is they'd look at a passage and they'd think, what rabbis can I quote on this? And they wouldn't provide their own interpretations. They would quote one rabbi, then another rabbi, then another rabbi, and they just go with that. Just consistently quoting individuals and it was just bland, just recitation. That does not sound like an individual with authority. That sounds like an individual you sit in front of and fall asleep because they've been talking for too long. <laughs> and they would just pass on everybody did that. Yet Jesus came and he provided new revelation. It was far different from what anybody was used to. And those aren't even the only reasons why Jesus had authority. Mm. Another reason is simply because he knew what he was talking about. Jesus, human in flesh, God in character and knowledge. He knew what he was talking about because he believed what he taught. You know, it's one thing to just recite what somebody else has said. And it's another thing to state something that you know to be divine truth. He believed what he taught. And finally, we've seen his authority, whether it be forgiving sins, having angels serve him or announcing the kingdom of God near and calling all men to repent. He shows his authority clearly through consistent, miraculous occurrences. It's not just what he says. It's not just what he believes, but it's clearly what he has done. Beautiful. Continuing on to verse 23, whenever we get to that unclean spirit, the demon of sorts, I want to go to Roger Green and what he stated about the unclean spirit comparative to Jesus. You know, as I say that, I can't help but be reminded with me quoting all of these people. I kind of sound like one of those old rabbis of that day, but neither here nor there. (laughs) The unclean spirit has nothing in common with Jesus. As a matter of fact, they're quite opposite. I mean, for starters, we have it's an unclean spirit as opposed to, you know, a righteous being. On another hand, it's a spirit that is an antagonist of truth. On another hand, it is a malignant spirit. 
tearing its victims till he cries aloud. Additionally, till Jesus speaks, this spirit dominates the person that it's in for the entire life. They have no control. It's all in the demon's hands. Continuing on, in Jesus's presence, it is a conquered spirit. With authority, he commanded even the unclean spirit, and they obey him. He didn't have to do any odd rituals. He didn't have to do consistent repetition of statements. The Lord rebukes you. The Lord rebukes you. The Lord rebukes you. He said a simple sentence and the demon fleed. Mm. There is no power in earth or in Hades above Jesus. Christ's words then, now and always cast out evil spirits. Continuing on, there's something interesting that we see from this conversation between the demon and Jesus. It's because from the perspective of the demon, you know, an entity that has knowledge of spiritual kingdoms, he calls Jesus the Holy One of God. And there's only one other person in the entirety of the Bible that's called this. That's Aaron. Aaron was called this in Psalms 106, verse 16. Now, the context of Aaron being called this was in his priestly duties, coming before God as the chosen one of God above all other Israelite children in order to do the will of God. So Jesus being called the Holy One of God from the perspective of a demon means what exactly? (laughs) It means that even from the perspective of a demon, Jesus ranks above all. Mm. This is especially significant considering that from the perspective of a demon, I or you, all of us, would be considered even below the angels. The perspective of a demon would see a human as lower in the hierarchy. Yet that demon, from its same perspective, viewed Jesus and saw him as the one who ranks above all. It's further evidenced even by the demon's fear and trembling. It wasn't just mere acknowledgement, but the demon was terrified in the presence of Jesus. And see, not just terrified for itself, but it asked the question, are you here to destroy us? But it said, I know who you are. This meant this demon was alone. It was an individual demon, but it was asking the question relating to the whole realm of the demonic. You see, the enemy very much so knows of its fate. But what the enemy does not know is the date of its fate. They know that Christ will lead to their ruination. All of them. We know from revelations that this is to occur, just not yet. Jesus ranks above them all. And I want to bring the question forward again. Are you willing to suffer For the one who ranks above all, Christ Jesus of Nazareth. Mm. And see, to follow Jesus as a disciple is clearly not going to be easy. I don't think I needed to tell you that, considering that the one criteria is to be willing to suffer for him. But it's not going to be easy. Mm. You see, everybody is given a spiritual gift of some sort. Not some people. No, everybody is given a gift. The question then becomes, will you invest your gift? I've preached about it in the past, you know, the parable of the individual who only had one gift versus the person who had two gifts versus the people that had five gifts. And the person who had five gifts, he doubled it. The person who had two gifts, he doubled his. But the person who had one gift, he buried his. And when the master came back, he was disappointed. He took away the one gift that the person had and gave it to the one that now had ten. Will you invest your gift? And many times it's very scary to do so. And it's not even just our flesh. Oh, I'm scared that I'm going to lose that gift. I'm, I'm scared that I'm going to return a negative for my master. But the world works against us. So it's not just our flesh, but the world also actively works against us. And it's not just ourselves and the world, but also there are demonic powers that don't want to see the lifting of the kingdom, the glorification of God, the sharing of the gospels. And I heard a wonderful quote recently, even. And it was, when faced with demons, 
A little prayer isn't going to scare them. But what scares them is if you got up and you shared the gospel. Hmm. We all have gifts, but will you invest? It's scary. Sure. It's difficult. Sure. We may face persecution. Sure. But we're blessed in the face of it. Amen. Hmm. Nothing comes easy. And I would say, though, do not fetishize suffering for suffering sake. I'm saying this because there's a kind of spiritual personality called aesthetics. And one of the drawbacks of aestheticism is that sometimes individuals will pursue spiritual or physical any kind of suffering just for the sake of suffering. Go on a 10-day fast just so that they can say they went on a 10-day fast. Have a reason. Don't just do it just to do it. But have a reason under God to pursue these things that aren't pleasant, that aren't easy, but build the kingdom that glorify God. Do it in prioritizing Christ first. And in closing, I just got to ask the question again. Are you willing to suffer for Christ? Each message, I try and drill home a point. And it's interesting because this message would actually be the kind of message that you would preach first. The kind of message you would preach to somebody who isn't even a Christian. And yet it's coming in the middle of the series. The placement may seem a little bit weird, but the validity stands regardless. Are you willing to suffer for Christ? Sometimes we don't make the intentional, the deliberate acknowledgement that even in the face of challenge, I'm willing to keep moving forward regardless. I've seen individuals, and you've probably seen individuals who are Christians, and they're just not willing to try and actively grow in their walk. Sure, you'll see them in church on Sunday, and sure, they may go to a revival twice a year, but beyond that, they're not willing to do the daily walk, picking up your cross. And I'm not trying to call you out. If you think this is about you, I mean, perhaps that's conviction, and there's something you need to do to change it. (laughs) But that's not my intention. The point simply is you have to be willing to answer The one question, the one main criteria for following Christ. Are you willing to suffer for him? This is my imagination station today. And it may have been one of the more tough ones to digest. I admit, again, I didn't feel fully prepared to preach it, but God got me regardless. (laughs) Simply titled, follow him with a simple question that shortly ain't easy. Are you willing to suffer for him? Have a blessed night, everybody. Thank you. You are listening to brothersoftheword.com. This was part three of the series titled Follow Jesus by George Bronner. This message is number 4114. That's 4114 to listen to thousands of free messages or to send this message number 4114 to a friend. Go to brothersoftheword.com. If this message has been a blessing to you and you would like to help support this ministry, go to iwanttogive.com. That's iwanttogive.com. Listen to brothersoftheword.com often because brother you need the word. Brothers of the word.